In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus traveled around Galilee, teaching and healing. Crowds gathered and followed him. Jesus went up on a mountain and taught the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he starts with eight statements that all begin with the word blessed. Join us as we journey through these eight descriptions that show where true joy and abundant life can be found. All right, hey everybody, welcome to Grace Life. Do me a favor, put your hands together, help me welcome all of our first-time guests. So glad to have you guys worshiping with us, those of you online as well as right here in the room. Speaking of guests, uh, I want to invite you, uh, right after this service, anybody who's never been to First Step, perfect time for you, free lunch, free child care. Uh, I get to meet you, we get to have a conversation, talk about who we are, what we believe, what we do, why we do it, and any other good question you can come up with. So if you've never been to First Step, stick around right after this service. All right, everybody, we are starting a new series today. I'm going to ask you all a question as we get started. You know, life can be hard, right? And so every now and then you feel like you need a little something, something just to kind of get you through everything. So who loves being lucky? Who would like to be lucky in here? There you go. Now, how about this? Who would rather be blessed? Woo, come on. Tricked you. Don't blame me. Not my fault. We're in church. The word lucky is not in the Bible. You should have known better. It's your own fault. You raised your hand for that one. So, uh, yeah, listen, uh, when I was in college, I was a music major. Uh, I am a musician. At least I hope I can still claim that. And uh, I was a concert pianist. And so right before we would go out on stage to do a concert, you know, somebody would, would always say something to you. And for whatever reason, the default phrase is good luck. Now, here, here's the reason that I don't like that phrase. Because in order to do what I did, as a pianist, that would mean playing for about an hour, Chopin, Beethoven, Rachmaninoff, Liszt, all that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, there is somebody in history that if I could travel back in time and slap them in the face really hard, I would. Because they invented the idea that pianists had to perform on stage without music, everything from memory. I don't know why, like, a trumpet player gets to take his music out on stage, but a pianist doesn't. And so for an hour, we're talking tens of thousands of notes that all had to be up here in order, hopefully correct, and then had to come out here, hopefully in order and correct. And so the ability to do that means that for at least six months, every single day, seven days a week, from at least four hours a day to eight hours a day, I would play the exact same music over and over and over so that I could walk out on stage and actually do that correctly. And the idea that right before I'd walk out on stage, somebody would tell me, I hope there's a fictitious force that helped you do this well. It's offensive. I mean, seriously, is it not offensive if you think about that? And if it's not offensive to you, it should be downright scary that you are going to go on stage in front of hundreds of people and your success is dependent upon something like luck. Who wants to live their life and hope that luck is always with you? Hopefully none of you, right? Matter of fact, some of us have even figured this out. We've carried it on to other parts of life. And one person in every state, 50 Americans, gets to claim hashtag blessed for their car license plate, right? You know, because everybody will look at life sometimes and they look at like, well, look at that guy in his new car and you get promoted and all this kind of stuff. You must be lucky. It's like, no, 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 not lucky, blessed. Life does not come from four leaf clovers, rainbows, and pots of gold at the end of it. We have a sovereign God who sits on his throne. Amen. Anybody with me on that one, right? Somebody there? So we're starting a series today simply called Blessed. 
And it's actually going to come out of statements Jesus made. Matter of fact, his most famous sermon, you may be familiar with, you may not. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you want to go look it up, maybe read through it. It takes three chapters in our book of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And as he began his most famous sermon ever, he started with eight statements about people who were blessed. And that's what we're going to be looking at because we want our lives to be blessed by God. I hope you do, right? Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you a couple of things that will set us up for the series as we get started with this idea. The first one is as as Jesus made these eight statements about what it would be like for your life to be blessed, we're going to tend to read these and think, hmm, I'm okay at that one. Ooh, I need to work on that one. Uh, Those two, I'm not sure I'll ever be any good at. Oh, that one, I know a guy at work just like that one. We're not meant to read these eight statements this way. The eight statements are supposed to be reflective of us altogether. Like every one of us should be able to reflect these eight. And so hopefully what we're going to do throughout the series is, is we're going to raise the watermark, so to speak, on each of these eight and how they represent our lives, how they reflect us. So don't just try to pick one and go for one. That's not the idea. We need to bring all eight of these statements into our lives so that we've got a life that is blessed by God. You guys with me? And then the second thing that you need to know as we do this, this will most likely conflict with everything that is natural to you. Matter of fact, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to talk about eight virtues that reflect a a blessed life. And the problem is these eight virtues are pretty much the opposite of humanity. Our, Our nature as a human it is going to exemplify the very opposite of what Jesus is going to be talking about. So as we go through this, you need to know from the very beginning, like this is not what the human race is going to be championing, but Jesus champions it. And so here we are. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me. Today, our, our main passage is just one sentence. It's actually going to be that way uh, every week as we look at this. And so we're in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. And he simply says this as the beginning statement to his entire Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And before we go any further, let's just talk about that word blessed. Just as a little poll curiosity for those of you that grew up in church. How many of you are used to hearing this read as blessed are the poor in spirit? Come on, blessed. Who's the blessed people in here? All right, well, I'm just going to go and tell you for this series, I'm, I'm more of a blessed kind of guy. And I got to be me. Blessed does not roll off my tongue quite the same way. And I would look very fake trying to do that the whole time. So we're going to go with blessed. But the other reason I want to talk about that word is because possibly in your Bible, there's, there's one or two English translations that will say happy. And I'm not going to get into all of the translation, uh, commentaries and all, nobody cares about that in here. But what I want to tell you is that the reason most English versions go with blessed is because it's probably a better word. Even though there's an occasion that the original language could be used as happy and can be used as blessed, here's the problem if you're using a version that says happy. Happy is an emotion that comes and goes. It's fleeting. You're not always happy, right? And so blessed, on the other hand, talks about the favor of God being approved by God. I don't know about you, but if I had to choose a word to describe my life, if I could choose an emotion that comes and goes versus approved and favored by God, I'm gonna go with approved and favored by God. Anybody else you with me on that one? So we're gonna go with blessed. And that is what most of your English versions are gonna say anyway. So to the point for the day, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what this phrase means, very, very simply, is humility before God. That's it. It means that when you stand before God, you acknowledge that you need him, that you've really got nothing that is ever gonna make God look down from heaven and go, Kendrick, wow, you are so impressive to me. I'm gonna ask Jesus to slide over and let you take his place. It's just never gonna happen. Sorry to tell you, the good news for you, Kendrick, is it's not just you, it's everybody. It's every human. None of us are ever gonna be so impressive that we're going to have God surprised and say, Jesus, scoot over, look at this kid. I mean, it's just not gonna happen. It's the reality of being poor in spirit is to say, God, I need you. I've got nothing that is gonna impress you. I've got nothing to offer that didn't come from you in the first place. And the beautiful part about this one is Jesus taught a whole parable on the idea of being poor in spirit. So we get to, we get to make sure we understand this one a little more deeply than maybe uh, some of the other things that he said. Now, I'm gonna take you there real quickly. He said this later as he was teaching people. Uh, so it's in Luke chapter 18 for you and me, if you wanna keep flipping with me, but don't worry. It'll be on the screen right there. And it starts in verse nine. And so Luke begins by saying, he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, this is a funny little fact about Luke. He always likes to tell people, very often he will tell people what Jesus is about to teach on in case they weren't bright enough to figure it out for themselves. So I don't know, I just think Luke is kind of funny that way. Um, and so he actually is gonna go ahead and tell us in advance that Jesus is going to give a story about how some people think they are good enough before God. In other words, not poor in spirit. And that when they think that they are impressive before God, they will look down on people that they consider to be less impressive. And so the story that Jesus gives us goes like this. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And I'm just gonna stop right there and make sure that we are all familiar with why Jesus used these two people for this story because they each have a meaning. And you may not be familiar with all of those meanings. The first one is the, the guy that's a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a religious person, except a better way to describe it is a hyper-religious person, meaning somebody who thought they were the best religious person. There were actually groups of religious followers back in the day, and Pharisees was one of them, but the Pharisees would have claimed they were the best. They were the, the most godly of the godly. They followed the rules better than anybody else. They were the best example that if anybody wanted to know what it was like to be good before God, be like a Pharisee. That's what they would have told you. And Jesus compares this perfect religious person, or at least so he thinks, to a tax collector. And if you've ever read the Gospels, you will often see the phrase sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered so bad, they were a step below sinners. Like there are sinners, there's people who need help, and then there are tax collectors. People hated tax collectors. And, and it's funny, I mean, like thousands of years later, you never would brag about working for the IRS to anybody, you know? But, but tax collectors were worse than somebody who works for the IRS because at least the IRS is your own people with your own government. Tax collectors back in the day were your people working for the Roman government that had conquered the world and was oppressing you. And they took taxes from you to give to the Roman government to pay the soldiers to oppress you. They weren't very well liked. And because of their power, they were crooked. They were cheats. So they would tell you what you owed the Roman government, 
and they would add a little for themselves. And what were you going to do about it? Because if you said anything, they would just ask the Roman soldier beside them to potentially shorten your lifespan. You could do nothing except hate them because they were thieves and they were the worst kinds of thieves. And so Jesus takes the idea of this person who considers himself the most godly example of godliness and the worst of the worst. And that's who he puts in his story. And he says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you. I'm gonna use my best Pharisee voice if you guys will give me a break here. I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. In case you missed the detail in the story, the guy is praying all of this out loud, very boldly, hoping that not only is God impressed with him, but so is everyone else. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a really simple illustration, isn't it? You've got one guy who thinks that he's impressive and amazing and does all of these great things and that somehow before God, he's great. And then you've got another guy who knows that before God, he doesn't even, he doesn't even lift up his head which by the way is a very important detail because the idea of prayer for the Jewish people was to take a posture where you stood straight, you stood boldly, you lifted your head and you cried out to the God of heaven. And in this case, told him how great you are as you are thanking God that you're a good man, right? And so the Pharisee has no problem taking on this posture demonstrating prayer before God. The tax collector, on the other hand, will not take the center of the room, will not even dare to look to heaven, but instead takes a place and a posture of mourning and beating his breast, and God, be merciful. The one thinks he has everything that would impress God. The other knows he has nothing. The two operative words that I've been using, I hope you caught, were before God. You see how many times they use the words before God, the Pharisee before God thinks this about himself and the tax collector before God thinks this about himself. There are people here today that would want to say, well, Jimmy, the truth is I don't think very much of myself. Matter of fact, I'm not even sure that many people like me and I haven't really done all that well at life and so I would never proclaim that I'm that great. I must be poor in spirit. And I would say probably not. That's not what that means. See, one of the things the devil would love to do is to tell you that you're no good. And he would love to remind you of all your mistakes, tell you that you're a loser in life or, or something like that. And one of the, the biggest lies the devil wants us to buy into is when, when depression is spiritual, it's not always spiritual, so follow that. But when depression is spiritual, it is an attack of the enemy. And it leads us to a place of self-hatred and self-condemnation where we say, I am no good. And what you need to understand is that is not poor in spirit. That is self-condemnation. That, that's not the same thing. The key words that we were talking about were before God. Let me give you other key words. Before the devil. Here's what we need to understand. No matter what you think about yourself, no matter what you've ever done wrong, before the devil, we are called to hold our heads high and say, I'm a child of God made in his image for good works. You leave me alone. 
That's what we're called to do. And the devil would love for you to stand in front of him and go, you're right, I'm no good. Even God wouldn't love me or forgive me. That's what the devil wants for you. That is not poor in spirit. That is a demonic lie that manifests as self-hatred. Are you with me? See, poor in spirit, on the other hand, is what we do before God, not before the devil. And before God, we, we say, I'm a child of God made in your image for good works. But that's a gift from you, so... I've got nothing to impress you. You see, it is all about the phrase before God. And so what we have to do here today is is answer the question, how am I doing it being poor in spirit? And I just want to go ahead and and tell you this. As you begin to, we're going to do a little self-diagnostic test here. There is no one that is going to always be perfectly poor in spirit at all times. Okay, are you guys with me? So this is one of those tests where you might make a great grade one day and a little bit lower grade another day because being poor in spirit is a daily thing. You guys ready for this? So there are two ways in our lives that we are going to see being poor in spirit manifest. Or another way to say that is there are two ways in our lives we're going to demonstrate to God that we are among the poor in spirit. And the first one begins with salvation. And so, you know, what we talk about in church, it may be an uncomfortable word to some of you, especially if you're a guest here today or, or this is not something that you do very often, but we use a word in church that doesn't get used a lot of other times, and that word is sin. And nobody likes that word. So let me just really simplify that for everybody. We have a perfectly holy God. Everybody with me on that one? Yep, perfectly holy God. And then you and I are not. We're not perfectly holy. And there's a separation from his perfect holiness to us. My arms will not go far enough apart to demonstrate his holiness compared to us. It won't happen. And so the word sin simply describes everything that separates us, that his holiness and then our not holiness. And what we need to understand is there's a line, holy, not holy. And we put a lot of effort into comparing each other Like, well, you know, if we think of all the people that have ever lived upon the earth that Jesus had to die for, if we were to list all of the humans and somewhere at the top would be dictators who committed genocide and mass murderers, I'm going to be like way down the list, and so I'm really not nearly as bad. Wrong. The comparison shouldn't work that way. If we're poor in spirit, we simply recognize, holy line us. That's it. And so the problem, the real problem we have is that every single one of us is on the wrong side of the line. It's called a sin problem. What are we going to do with our sins? Now, here's the question that will help you decide how poor in spirit you are when it comes to dealing with your sin problem. How would you feel if someone walked up to you in a public place, in front of non-Christians, and more loudly than they should, ask you, hey, are you saved? How would you feel? Like you're standing in line at Mod Pizza, which they are as slow as everything. I mean, cannot ever be claimed to be fast food. And so you're trapped in front of these people for like 10 minutes, and somebody in line behind you says, hey, I was just curious, are you saved and going to heaven? Now, let's go with the stereotypical answer, which my wife just demonstrated. Most women 
are going to smile and say, why, yes, yes, I am. And forgive the stereotype, but it is true to us. Most of us guys would turn around and look at him and go, man, you are crazy. Can you just shut up? You know, I mean, like, the last thing we're going to want to do in a place in front of a bunch of non-Christians is talk about salvation, whether or not we're saved. Matter of fact, if we were to give out free T-shirts today to everyone walking out the door that says, proudly saved, very few men would wear that shirt ever and definitely not to work tomorrow. It's our reality. Because... Even if we're willing to come into a room like this where we all think alike and act alike, and we know that no one is going to make fun of us for being saved in this room, we're a little less bold to talk about our need to be saved. Holy line us. And we've got no answer for it. There's nothing we can do. Matter of fact, we think there is. How many times have you met somebody who says, well, you know, I'm not so sure I need to be saved. After all, I think that's one of those churchy things. The truth is, I try to be a good person. Well, I realize I'm not perfect, but, and they always have a but to that. I'm not perfect, but, well, here's the problem. If you're not perfect, you're on the wrong side of the line. So let's get back to the idea that we, well, I just try to be a good person. And can I just say, please do. Thank you. There are 8 billion of us sharing this tiny little circle spinning through the universe. And we love it when people actually, like, let you out in traffic. We love it when people take their appropriate place at the back of the line and wait their turn. We love it when people pick up a wallet and give it back to the owner instead of taking it out of their pocket and running the other way. Thank you for being a good person. It makes life better for all of us. But it does not solve your problem of sin before God. And being poor in spirit is when we recognize, God, I have offended your holiness. I've tried to be a good person, but that doesn't matter because I have still had either a thought or a feeling or done something or said something. At some point, I I have not been perfectly holy and I need help with my sin problem. It is when we cry out to Jesus Christ and say, will you be my Lord? Will you be my savior? Will you be my king? That is for every one of us where being poor in spirit begins, is being willing to admit, I've offended a perfectly holy God and I can't fix it. I can't do anything about it and I need to be saved. And again, some of us would say those words in front of anybody loudly. Others of us, we'd say them quietly. The important thing for right now is that we're at least willing to say them. We at least acknowledge that is my reality. And then I think the longer that you walk with God, the more boldly you're going to say those words. Does that make sense? All right, so the truth is that one is a one-timer. That's the one time that you recognize in your life that you need to be saved by Jesus. And it comes with a reward. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's a nerd moment for everybody. When G, uh, Matthew is using this phrase, kingdom of heaven, it's the only place that you're going to see that really in the Bible. Everywhere else in the Bible, you're going to see the phrase kingdom of God. And just for your sake, I want everybody to know those are the same. They are one and the same. If you've ever read the Gospels in the Bible and you've wondered, why are they emphasizing stories differently or emphasizing different details? It's because each one of them has a different audience. And Matthew is written to mostly Jewish people. That's what he intended his readers to be, were the Jewish people of the day. Well, the problem is the Jewish people of the day revered God so much they wouldn't even say his name. So if you're writing a a book to Jewish people, you can't say kingdom of God because they can't say the word. 
you say kingdom of heaven. It's one and the same. You guys with me? So that'll help as, as we're going throughout the series. But Matthew makes the promise, well, Jesus makes a promise. Matthew tells about it. Blessed are the foreign spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, here's what happens in the natural realm. Right here, right now, for some of you, it'll be today. For some of you, it was last Sunday. For some of you, it was six months ago. For some of you, it was 20 years ago. But you were in a church, maybe even in this one recently. And I said, for those of you who'd like to make Jesus your king, and you began to pray a prayer with me. And in the natural realm, you, you sat in a place, stood in a place like this. Some of you are online in your living room and you said those words. But what was happening in the spiritual realm that was visible to angels and visible to you and me, the Bible tells us that at that moment, you were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. If it were possible for you to have seen like your citizenship card, you would have had a, a citizenship card that said condemned citizen in the kingdom of darkness where every human is born. And at that moment, it would have just morphed spiritually and it would have like, I don't know, turned to gold or something. It would have been amazing and said citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And the riches that come with that are beyond incredible. I can't begin to do justice in our time today to explain the riches of the kingdom of God. It would take a whole series. I've done series on that before. I'm gonna do a series on it in, in the next couple of years once again. So I'm just gonna like give you a little teaser of the kinds of things that come from that. You know, the Bible talks about peace that surpasses understanding that comes from God. Meaning every human should be freaking out, but somehow you are at peace. That is a riches that comes out of the kingdom of heaven. A citizen of the kingdom of heaven knows that they are taken care of by the, the king who sits upon the throne, that they are a child of the one true living God. And they don't need to be freaking out when everybody else is. It's a riches of the kingdom. Does that make sense? The ability to not feel shame and guilt, even though you know you've been imperfect, is a riches of the kingdom of heaven. How about the ability to tell the devil where to go? It's one of our favorite things to do. We get all fired up in prayer and say, I'm a child of God, devil, you get away from me. We go, woo, you know, we're all excited. The authority and the ability to tell the devil to leave you alone is because you carry a citizenship card for the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Every one of us is responsible at one point in our lives to make that exchange of the, the life we've been living for the one that God has for us. Now, then comes the second way in our lives that we demonstrate we're poor in spirit. This one is a little tougher. This is the one where you might get a better grade one day than another day. Because this comes down to a daily dependence upon God. Yet, it means that we do life with him every single day. The problem is, as a pastor, refer to this as the great disconnect. Because you can walk up to someone and say, are you a Christian? And their thought of, I'm a Christian, is I prayed a prayer and I believe in Jesus, so I'm going to heaven. And what a lot of us tend to do is say, thank you, Jesus, you saved me. Now I got life, I'll see you in heaven. We think we got this thing handled. Being poor in spirit is the person who wakes up every day, says, God, if you're not with me, I'm not getting out of this bed because I can't do this. I've got nothing to offer the world. See, I've got four children, and if you've ever had more than one child, you have watched something take place that's really unique about human nature. You, you will have a child, and it, it's a little baffling because they're all raised in the same home, potentially getting the exact same nurturing, having the same parents, but you will get completely different reactions. One of them is a child who says, Daddy, will you help me? Tie my shoes or get my bicycle down or whatever it is. 
and every time if you've had more than one child, the other child or the other children. No, thank you, Daddy. I can do it. There is something in us that just says, I want to prove it. I want to show you that I'm great. I want to show you that I've got something. I might even impress you if you watch long enough. There's just something in us. And then we grow up, and that's how we talk to God. I've got something, God, that's going to excite you. Got something that's going to impress you. Hey, God, look at me. Out of all of the people you ever put on the earth, I'm, I'm one of the better ones. Watch. You see, I told you that the virtues Jesus would promote would conflict with humanity because at this point, what humanity promotes is self-reliance. The ability to say, Daddy, I've got this. Matter of fact, every movie you've ever watched, every biography you've ever read was about a great self-made man or self-made woman. They, they never do the opposite. Every story you've ever heard about someone who's done something great, it, it talks about how they were a kid teaching themselves to read, studying by candlelight until 2 a.m. They walked to school uphill both ways. In the snow, even in Arizona. They worked double shifts while they started a business in their garage. Everybody was against them, and somehow they still succeeded, and we can't put that biography down. You have never read the book. You have never seen the movie, nor will you ever. It goes like this. They couldn't do anything apart from their father. He showed up every time they were in trouble and helped them even though they didn't deserve it. He would sneak around behind them or in front of them to make their circumstances go a little better than they deserved. Everybody thinks they were good at that. The truth is their father made them good at that. He put it in them. They would have done nothing if it weren't for him. It'd make the worst movie ever for humans. But it's the greatest story in the kingdom of heaven. And being poor in spirit is when we recognize that. Being poor in spirit is when we recognize today, God, I got nothing if you don't show up. I I'm going to need you to help with my circumstances I'm going to need you to answer prayers I don't even know to pray. I, I'm, I'm going to try to be good at something, but it, it had to start with you putting it in me, and I'm only going to be able to be good at it if you even help me do that. I, I can't do anything. The truth is, God, I'm probably going to hurt somebody today if you don't help me. God, I've got nothing right to choose. I, if, if you're not with me today, I'm going to choose wrong because it's always easier and sometimes looks better truth is, God, I've got nothing that is going to impress you apart from what you're doing in me. See, that's what being poor in spirit is every single day. It's going to God and saying, I, I, I've got nothing apart from what you're doing in me. Apart from the fact that you're my father, I, I'm not a self-made man or a woman. We're all different people. I'm, I'm a Bible guy. 
What I mean by that is, is I could read the Bible for an hour and enjoy every moment of it. I, I love reading the Bible. I love studying it. I love talking about it. You could probably figure that out. Some of you, on the other hand, are more worship people. Like, you'd love to put on worship music and just close your eyes and just enjoy the presence of God. Others of you are more prayer people. You, you, you kind of force your way through your Bible reading for the day, so then you can just pray and talk to God for an hour. And, and I want to tell you that the way God made you is okay. Every one of us is going to be a little different in that, and that's okay. But God's been showing me something about me that is going to be a little convicting for some of you as well. Because I'm more of a Bible guy, I'm less of a prayer guy. If you give me an hour, I'm going to spend 50 minutes in the Bible and 10 minutes in prayer. Maybe 55 and 5, just being honest. And when I do pray, I tend to be a person who, who prays out of need. Right? Come on, y'all know what I'm talking about. The, oh my gosh, there's an algebra test today? Oh no, those are blue lights behind my head? Oh, you know, we, we tend to pray out of crisis. I'm not a person who's naturally going to wake up every day and just talk to God about my need for him to help me through the day. And so what God's been showing me, I, I didn't really have the words to it until I started to work on this message is I'm not really poor in spirit as much as I should be. Because if I were poor in spirit, I would be spending a lot more time telling God how much I need him before I even get out of bed. The funny thing is, God has actually been doing something there as well. My, my wife and I had the incredible privilege of, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> going on a, a trip called the Footsteps of Paul a few years back. And it's a beautiful trip because we got to go to Greece and all of the surrounding areas, everywhere where Paul, who wrote the majority of our New Testament, had done stuff like uh, places where he wrote the Bible to or places where he wrote the Bible from and places where he was in jail and, and those kinds of things. It was a great trip. And the tour guide was a pastor who was poetic. He was in touch with his feelings. And his hope was that the rest of us would get in touch with our feelings. So we would go somewhere and get off the bus or whatever, and he would, so how do you feel as you think about it? I don't feel anything, man. I, all I want to know is, that, did Paul stand on that rock? Because if Paul stood on that rock, I'm going to stand on that rock. Because I want to do what Paul did. Was Paul in that prison? Because I want to go and like rub the walls. Up, you know I mean? I just, that, that's what I want to know. He's always talking about, well, let's just reflect. One time he was, we were somewhere that I don't remember, talking about someone that I don't remember. Because the only thing that I remember was a question that he brought up that this person prayed. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which is the same words Jesus used in the parable. And as he was talking about this person, whomever, wherever, all I remember at that moment was, I don't remember the last time I prayed those words. I can't remember the last time that I thought, God, have mercy on a sinner. It's not usually how I open talking to God. 
But a very funny thing is actually happening in my life at the same time over the last however many years of my life, I've been discovering how stressful life can be and maybe some of you can identify with that. The older you get, the more the stresses seem to add up and more promotions really just means more stress. And I was getting to a point where I'm supposed to be leading a church and leading four kids and leading my wife and making good decisions in every aspect of life and making much of Jesus and honoring God everywhere I am because you never know when you're in a restaurant. Somebody says, hey, Pastor Curtis. I'm like, I mean, so you, you like everywhere you go, you've got to be impressive. And the truth is that was really beginning to be an incredible sort of stress. And I found myself waking up so stressed that I just wanted to go back to sleep. Isn't it? You don't have to raise your hand for this, but some of you know what I'm talking about, where your first breath of the day, your first thought of the day makes you just want to go back to sleep. Because you just, you, you feel overwhelmed like you've already felt. And I didn't realize that I was never like formulating the words, but what I was doing inside was, God, I'm going to be a good child for you today. I'm going to go and I'm going to write a good sermon for you this week and I'm hopefully going to get a lot of your people to, to follow you better and God, I'm going to counsel somebody today and give them good advice and I'm going to be a good father today and a good husband today and I'll make good financial decisions for my family today and God, I'm, I'm going to be a good child for you today. If you haven't been there, I hope you don't go there because it is a very stressful place to live your life. Waking up every day, telling God you've got this and that you're going to be good at it. And after that trip, I found myself waking up one of those mornings and feeling the incredible pressure. And I just laid in bed, and my first thought was, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Don't anybody freak out. I'm not facing any moral failure issue. I'm, I'm not disqualified in any way. I'm not facing any specific sin issue that you need to, no, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is taking the bar from the Pharisee who said, today, God, look what I'm going to do for you. I'm putting it down here where the tax collector is saying, God, have mercy on me today. Do you know how much easier it is to succeed as the tax collector? Do you know how much less stressful it is to get out of bed knowing the only standard is God, help me? It changed my life. I hope it'll change some of yours. The first thought that you have every day is God, have mercy on me. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray for us. God, we come before you today to acknowledge that we have spent our entire lives trying to impress ourselves, trying to impress each other, and sadly, most of all, trying to impress you. It took us years to acknowledge that we were sinners and needed you to, to do something that would allow us to even be in your presence. And then true to form, most of us went from there to say, Thank you, God, I've got life now. I can, I can do this. Let me show you, I can be one of your good ones. God, today we lay all of that at your feet and say we're sorry. We ask you, God, to help us be people who wake up every day and say, God, if it's not for you today, I don't think I can make it. I've got nothing to offer you or the world apart from you.
Help me, God. If you're just staying in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have never taken the first step. First step of being poor in spirit is acknowledging God's holy. We're not. The good news is that he loved you so much that he sent his son to live a perfect life and then die on the cross so that his perfect life would pay for your sins. You could be forgiven and have eternal life. Again, it's the phrase, free gift of salvation. If you've never exchanged the life you've been living for the one that God has for you, I want to help you do that right now, wherever you are. Simply say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. My simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Help me celebrate.